Well, let's stand together. We're going to read Acts chapter um, 2, verses 37 through 41. Not a long section of Scripture, but a really impactful and important section of Scripture for us this morning. Luke says, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, were, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Lord, we come to you now asking, Lord, that you would have your way with us. This is um, a foundational portion of your scriptures, Lord, where you are teaching us about the essential nature of the Christian message the core attributes of the gospel, and Lord, the need for us to respond rightly to that. And so, Lord, help us to be humble, help us to be teachable, and uh, Lord, what what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And allow me as your messenger, as your mouthpiece, Lord, to simply proclaim the truth of your word to those who are your people, as well as, Lord, to those who are not, so that they would come to know you and that your church, Lord, would would grow in their understanding of what it means to live for you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Peter has just finished preaching the first ever public Christian sermon. And it's an answer to the question, what does this mean? And it seeks to explain what the Jews gathered from towns and villages all over the Roman world, what they had heard. And what they had heard were the 120 speaking in their native tongues, proclaiming the mighty works of God. It's an incredible experience, an incredible phenomenon. And we can summarize the sermon as following, really five points. Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit just as Joel prophesied, you heard it. Jesus came in the flesh, you know it. Jesus was crucified, you did it. Jesus rose again, we are witnesses of it. Jesus is both Lord and Christ, you can be certain of it. It's a powerful sermon with a powerful message. And Peter summarizes his sermon in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And at that point in time, Peter drops the microphone. And the content of his sermon is coursing through the veins and the hearts and the minds of his hearers. And the question our text text is asking us is this. I'm going to repeat it in four different ways. How will these Jews from all over the Mediterranean respond to the preaching of Christ? How will they respond to the Christian message? What is the impact of Peter's gospel preaching on the hearts of devout Jews gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. What effect will Peter's preaching have? And it presents the question for all who sit under the preaching of God's word. How does one rightly respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? My friends, this is an essential question, isn't it? This is at the heart of what it means to be a believer, responding rightly to the preaching 
of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, you may be here this morning for the first time hearing the Christian message for the first time and wondering, what am I supposed to do with it? You may be a regular attender who conforms to the culture and activity of the church, but who has never asked the question, what must I do with this good news? You may be an active and regular attender, or even a member of the church, and every time you sit under the, the ministry of the word, whether it's here in church, or whether it's in the discussions in home group, or whether it's in a Bible study, or, or a one-on-one discussion the questions you should be asking yourself is, what should I do with what I have just heard, what I've just read, what I've just studied, what I've just discussed? What am I supposed to do with it? Is it just knowledge for knowledge's sake? I mean, we have these wonderful gateway little booklets that you can take notes and stuff. Is it just so you can get the notes in there and walk away? Or is there something more going on here? Now, the book of James describes the word of God as a mirror that reflects back to us the ways we need to change. But the question for us this morning is this. Will I rightly respond to the word of God? Sometimes we just want to ignore it, don't we? Because it's probing areas in our lives that we don't want it to interfere with. Sometimes we just want to deny it, convincing ourselves that What God's word is saying isn't actually what we're doing or what we're thinking. Sometimes we're simply afraid of it. Afraid of exposure or the change demanded or the shame that that, that results when I actually have to acknowledge what it is that I'm doing is true. Sometimes we welcome it with humility. And as such, we find joy as we grow in Christ and with others. Now, the structure of our text falls neatly into four sections that reveal four avenues of gospel activity that move us toward answering the question. Now, just to remind you that we're we're, we're studying here narrative. This is not not discourse, or I might want to say the epistles, where you have things that are logically laid out in order, so you don't necessarily have steps, but you have these different arenas or avenues of gospel activity, and there is some sense of order to them. But the point here is not to follow step one and step two and step three and step four. So let's, let's now jump into our text and first of all consider uh, what I'm calling a gospel conviction. A gospel conviction. How do these people respond to the sermon that Peter's just preached They respond with a gospel conviction. We find that in verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's three things I want you to notice here. First of all, what they heard. And what they heard was Christ. They heard about fulfilled prophecy, Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation. They heard that Jesus was in their midst proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and doing signs and wonders and that they had ignored him. They heard that the scriptures prophesied that Messiah would suffer and that he'd be raised up to sit on the throne, but they had been blind to it. They had heard that Yahweh, the one God of Israel, had made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus is the promised Messiah, but they had crucified him along with the help of the Romans, and they were guilty. Now, it's important that we understand, friends, that what Peter is saying here on this Pentecost day, preaching the sermon, isn't Peter's gospel. It's not like Peter got up that morning, rolled out of bed on Pentecost and said, you know what, this would be a good day for a sermon. I wonder what I'm going to speak on. Hmm, Maybe I'll just kind of let the Holy Spirit do his thing. No, we have to understand that things have already been laid out for us in Luke's gospel in particular, Luke 24, where, where he explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. He explains about himself from the Old Testament. At the beginning of Acts, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching the apostles what to say as they are witnessing. 
So this isn't Peter's gospel. This is Jesus's gospel that Peter now is passionately reflecting with conviction to these Jews. And just as Peter's sermon shows us the essential content of the Christian message, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, so too Luke now records the crowd's response. And it shows us the authentic response to the Christian message. That's what they heard. Now notice what they experienced. They were cut to the heart. In other words, they have been pierced violently by the truth of the gospel message to the core of their being. It means that they were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Now, please hear this. It wasn't the sound of rushing wind or the tongues like fire that cut them to the heart. But the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, from the 120 that were preaching about the mighty works of God. And then second, by Peter, who preached the word to them. It is always, always, always the word of God that brings about conviction. Hebrews 4.12, you know it very well. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's the word of God that penetrates the wall of our heart and brings conviction. So the primary activity of Pentecost was preaching. Peter's sermon takes up the lion's share of chapter 2, doesn't it? It's the main event. But the primary emotion of Pentecost is conviction. They are cut to the heart. They knew about Jesus, but they ignored him. They participated in his death. They crucified him. The scriptures prophesied about him, but they rejected him. John Newton famously said about this text, Peter preached at the conscience as a soldier aims at the face. In other words, Peter wasn't standing up there saying, I just want to tell you a story. It's a good story. It's an old story. It's throughout the scriptures, but it's a nice story. No, he's preaching in such a way to bring about conviction. Now, he doesn't bring it. But he's compelling them with the proclamation of the word of God to consider what he's saying. And it's weighty. So you can hear it through the sermon, can't you? Just pick up a few of these verses here. Verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known and give ear to my words. That's the first statement he gives. Hey, all you guys out there, listen to me. My pastor growing up, he would do that. Say, he would stop, point his finger and say, listen to me. Now, it wasn't me. He wasn't him that he wanted you to listen to. It was the word of God that he was saying, this is important. Pay attention to this, right? And Peter goes on, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 29, brothers, I say to you with confidence. Then in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain. He is pushing. He is proclaiming. He's giving the weight of the word of God. His preaching is going for the jugular of conviction. That's what they experienced. Christ is what they heard. And so, of course, what they asked is a question. Brothers, what shall we do? Now, in our reform circles, where we rightly understand that the gospel to be all God's doing, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We celebrate salvation is all in God's origination and transaction. But that doesn't mean that we are, in a sense, uninfluenced by the word of God or that we are not responding to the, the, the word of God. In other words, that doesn't negate then any kind of interaction that we have with the gospel. Certainly we are to respond. God is the one who is, who is doing the, the, the saving, but we are the ones who must respond. We're not robots. We're not empty vessels. We're human beings created in the image of God. We think, we listen, we process, we feel. And there are some things that God requires of us that his true salvation, or so that his true salvation is realized in us, 
It doesn't take anything away from God at all. He's fully in control. But it does reveal the genuineness of our heart. Friends, here are Jews. We're told in verse 5 they are devout Jews. These are zealous Jews. And we know they're zealous Jews. Why? Because they traveled from all around the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, where they were sent out because of the diaspora. And they're coming back for this, this festival called Pentecost. I mean, you have to be devout to say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make that journey. And they're coming. And they're listening. And so their response here is great panic and great alarm. But they speak with respect, don't they? They say, brothers. (laughs) I mean, they're listening to Peter and and the other 120, you know, speak. And they're recognizing these are our brothers. But what's weighty here is we've killed the Messiah. What shall we do? This is a radical question from zealous and devout Jews who traveled to Jerusalem. I mean, feel the weight of that. I mean, if you would say, hey, we're going to go evangelize some people, you would walk into that situation and be like, yeah, these people probably aren't going to listen because they're so devout, they're so zealous for their religious persuasion. Ah, I don't know how the world the gospel is going to penetrate. I mean, this is, this is the weight of it, right? And yet God does a mighty thing in this text. So this is no small thing. And friends, here at Gateway, please hear this. The right response to the message of Christ, to the word of God, is critical for your eternal destiny and for your ongoing walk with Christ. Have you ever experienced being cut to the heart because of the message of the gospel? Do you even know what that looks like? Now, having become a Christian, are you still cut to the heart when the word of God is preached and taught and read? Does it drive you to the question, what must I do? It should. It must. And if it doesn't, it may be that you have never actually been converted. That's a hard statement, Pastor Rod. I mean, that's pretty rude. You're kind of slapping me silly. I'm not slapping you. I'm trying to give you the weight to understand that to enter to the the kingdom of God comes through Jesus Christ. It's not just some kind of an intellectual ascent. There's some radical change that takes place in you. And it means you have to deal with your sin. And when you realize that you have offended a holy God, it, it... Cut you to the heart. So this is a gospel conviction. Let's move now into the next couple of verses I'm calling a gospel call. You might say that's kind of a strange title. Were you just trying to get the C words in there because they're all going to begin with C. And the answer is no. But I want you to, let's read the, these two verses together, but I want you to see that what we read here, in particular as we get to the end of these two verses, is that all of these responses take place under the activity or the umbrella of God calling people to himself. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the the, the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, what we're, what we're seeing in this answer is this big backdrop to say God is in the business of drawing people to himself. And how does that take place? Well, we're going to see that. This is, this answer, it, it is really an, a pure act of grace on God's part. We are guilty, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but but God breaks in and starts to draw us to call us. And Peter's answer about God's call involves two commandments and two promises. And note that these two commandments and promises are speaking of a personal response, not a corporate one. Notice what it says, repent and be baptized. What? 
every one of you. In other words, that is what you personally, you individually have to do on your own. Mom and dad can't do it for you. Your friends can't represent you. You can't ride on the coattails of a family member or, 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 or an organization or even a church to save you. This is you and God. Now, Peter's response has become, in essence, the answer to everyone seeking in every generation, in every culture, and in every nation. Peter is saying specifically to each and every Jew present, there are two things you must do, and there are two promises for each of you who follow those commands. Now hear this. It's one thing to be convicted. Lots of people can be convicted. But it's another thing to act on that conviction in the right way. Have you ever been convicted? but you fight it? See, Peter is appealing here not to fight that conviction, but to embrace it as the means to see what needs to actually happen. So let's look at the, the firstly, the two commands. There's first of all, a call to repent. Now the word repentance comes from a Greek word, metanoia, which means to change your mind, but biblical repentance is not limited only to the mind. Biblical repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a change in a person's life. To say it in a shorter way, repentance is a radical change in our attitude that leads to a change in our action. And in this present context, it means a radical change from Jews who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, to those who are bowing down and worshiping him. It's a radical change. Repentance means for them that they regret and are ashamed of their involvement in the crucifixion of Jesus. It means that they confess their sin against him. It means that they have turned away from their former attitude about Jesus and that they accept that he is both Lord and Christ. It's a radical separation from the direction and the passion and the heart of what they were once doing. And this is all happening on Pentecost. So it's a call to repent. It's also a call to be baptized. And Peter expects those who are repenting to be baptized. The baptism speaks of a public declaration that you have changed allegiance. It means a fresh start. It's a visual way to publicly declare the repentance that has taken place in your heart and the washing away of guilt by means of the forgiveness that you receive. It pictures that one being baptized identifies with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism is a powerful and effective symbol of what has happened as I repent and turn to Jesus. It says, I'm a new man under new management with new motives and a new manner of life. Now, I am a big soccer fan, so my my illustration here comes from the world of soccer. You may have heard of the guy, a player by the name of Lionel Messi, probably considered the best soccer player in the world. Now, for 20 years... Lionel Messi played for FC Barcelona. I mean, he was Barcelona. And last year, or say this year, he transitioned from Barcelona to PSG. At Barcelona, he scored in those 20 years about 480-something goals. Incredible. But this year, he's transitioned to PSG. He is now a player in a new city, in a new country, under new management, with new goals, and wearing a new uniform. Now, bring things into an American context, you've heard of Tom Brady. And Tom Brady, of course, you know, was a quarterback uh, for the New England Patriots, winning six Super Bowls in 2020. He left the New England Patriots after 19 years to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where he's already won one Super Bowl. 
He went from wearing blue, white, and silver to wearing red, pewter, and white. He's now a player representing a new city with a new mascot wearing a new uniform. I'm just trying to show you a picture of what repentance and baptism does, how it affects you. So in other words, here we are as Christians. We were serving one Lord, which was self, or we could say Satan, doing what we want to do with our own agendas, and we encounter Christ, and everything radically changes. We repent, and we turn completely in the opposite direction, and now we are new men, new women, under new management, with new motives, and a new purpose or manner of life. Because of Christ, that is what I am. That's why it says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Now, this idea of the name of Jesus is not some kind of a magical formula. Some denominations will say, you can only baptize in the name of Jesus, as if that's the, you know, that's kind of like the, the, the special word that is used. Many times they believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, which means that baptism is the means of your salvation. We'll get to that in just a minute. But this is not a formula. But the idea of the name of, we, we, we get that even from Joel's prophecy. Remember that? that? Joel's prophecy, and Peter quotes it, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you remember, Peter connects the Lord in Joel's prophecy, who is Yahweh, to Jesus. So if you're going to say in Jesus' name, we know what you're actually saying? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we're talking about the one true God. Right? That's why in our context, we will baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Many of the people that will baptize in the name of Jesus are making a distinction because they are actually typically modalists. They'll say there's God the Father, God the Son, and now there's God the Holy Spirit, so we do it in Jesus' name. But the emphasis here is saying this person is identifying with Christ. I'm being baptized in his name. I'm responding to Joel's prophecy. Now, this group of devout Jews, there's a radical requirement for them, isn't it? They have come from all over the Roman world to participate in Pentecost, only to be cut uh, cut to the heart. And, And what Peter says is a requirement for them is both repentance and baptism. Now, friends, it would be easy simply to say in your heart, I've repented, and say, okay, that's it, I've done all I need to do. But the command of Scripture is then to be baptized. To stand up in the context, in in this case, with a mass of other devout Jews who are there to celebrate Pentecost and to say, I am guilty. I crucified the Messiah. And to say, he is the Messiah and I now humble myself before his lordship. That's radical. That's shocking. That's controversial. And the gospel is all of those things. It's not just something you say, well, yeah, I decided to follow Jesus and I'm going to add him to my life. No, this is radical, friends. This is a whole change of being. The gospel isn't something we do. It's not just something we just kind of nestle into. No, it's a radical change of everything in my life because now Jesus is on the throne and he's my Lord and master. Therefore, I need to listen to him. And how does he communicate his will? Through his word that's breathed out and illuminated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So these are the two commands. But these two commands also then follow up with two promises. First of all, the promise of forgiveness, to be forgiven is to be released from a legal or moral obligation or consequence. Biblical forgiveness is to be totally and completely pardoned for my sin. What does God say? He says, I cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. This is an image to say, you're not going to find it. He he buries our sins in the depths of the deepest sea. Again, that's imagery to say, you're not going to find it. He says, I hold it behind my back. Now hear this, God doesn't forget your sin. To forget is passive. God knows about your sin. 
but he's not holding you accountable for it anymore. Why? Because it's been paid for by the blood of Christ. It's a very important distinction. God wipes our record clean. Now, because of the blood of Christ, our sins have been paid for, and and there's great relief for all of us because we are no longer enemies, but friends and family because we are forgiven. So when I turn back to Jesus, maybe having fallen into sin, when I turn back to him, I don't find him frowning at me. I find him with open arms that include his blood-stained hands welcoming me. He loves me so much that he gave his life for me so that I could be forgiven. This morning, Ed began with asking the question, are you ever worried? Are you ever anxious? And I think some people get rather nervous about turning back to Jesus when they've fallen into sin. They're worried, will he, will he, what will he be like? Will he be angry with me? Will he accept me? Will he, he, what will happen to me if I turn back to him? And so rather than repent and restore your relationship with Christ, you choose to go on your way and, and not come back. But we forget, don't we, that he came to earth for us. He died for us. He went to the cross for us. And that he truly loves us. See, we just get in our minds that he is not going to want to hear from us. Oh, the opposite is true, my friends. He loves to hear the prayers of a repentant heart. No matter the sin, no matter the failure, no matter the mess. So the word of God brings conviction. Conviction leads to repentance. Repentance bears fruit and forgiveness, and the end result is our salvation. Therefore, and hear this, it's not baptism that produces forgiveness, but forgiveness that causes the need for baptism. It's because I'm forgiven now that I'm going to stand up and say, you know what, I I have repented, I've been forgiven, I've been saved, and now I want to declare to you the truth of what has taken place in my heart. I want this to be a public demonstration of my inward reality. So Peter isn't saying that repentance and baptism are working together to bring about the fruit of forgiveness, but that baptism is the necessary outward declaration of the forgiveness that you have received because of your repentance. So forgiveness, pardon for my sin, is the first promise for those who repent. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, isn't repentance just a wonderful truth? I mean, right now, if you're a child of God, you are forgiven. You can't be more forgiven. Well, as far as eternity is concerned, you can't. But you can be forgiven as you recognize your sinfulness and restore your relationship with him. Now, secondly, there's the promise of the Holy Spirit. His active presence in your life. Peter had quoted Joel's prophecy and said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now he says they'll be forgiven and they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark of all who have repented and acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Christ. So after the forgiveness of sin, the, tra- the transforming and empowering presence of God's spirit distributed by Jesus, the exalted Lord from heaven, is the central offer of the gospel, the gift of the spirit. If you are a true child of God, hear this, you have, past tense, repented of your sin. You have been, past tense, baptized, identify- identifying yourself with Christ. You are a present reality based on a past experience, you are forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. But we have, present tense, the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit within us at all times. See, this is, this is the gift, and the gift you take with you now into your new walk with the Lord. Based on this foundation of repentance and, and, and forgiveness, we have the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he says, for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So verse 39, he shares with us two fronts. There's, there's, there's a distance in time. In other words, you have parents and you have children, older and younger. And then you have a distance in space for those who are near as well as far off. And he's picking up language now from the book of Isaiah. And Peter ends with another quote from Joel 2 and verse 32. And I just want you to, to hear this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord had said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So you have people who are calling on the name of the Lord, and you have God who is calling people to himself. It's happening in Joel. And Peter's just reflecting that now in his sermon. So Peter responds to the question, what shall we do with four answers? Repent and be baptized, as well as receive forgiveness and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the call. Then we move into what I'm calling a gospel compulsion. A gospel compulsion. Verse 40. Peter continues to reinforce what he had already said in this sermon about Jesus. It says there, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And it's an indication that what Luke has given us as a record in the book of Acts is not all that Peter has said. He certainly gave us the the essence of this gospel message about Christ. But he continues now after they've asked the question to, to show them about Christ from all different places. So he continues to bear witness. This is what he has been called to do. And he continues to exhort them. He warns them. He pleads with them from the scriptures. And the language that Luke uses here tells us that for Peter, there was a sense of fervency. There was a sense of urgency for the people to respond. And so Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, if you just take that verse out of its context, see, God says you need to save yourselves. What he's saying is, look, the gospel is there before you. He's saying, repent. You have to be the one who repents. You have to respond this way. So Peter's concern is that the Jews would be saved. That they'd stop choosing to be willfully ignorant and fighting against God. That they would see the evidence of the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And that by putting their faith in him and turning away from their sin, they can be saved. Peter is clearly discerned that a new day has dawned, a day of salvation, an opening door of grace, whereby everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The choice is clear. It's either salvation in Jesus' name or it's judgment before the throne of God. Now he talks here about a crooked generation. He identifies the Jews there as being a crooked generation. Now, the reality of that has already been laid out in Luke's gospel as well as the other gospels. And we just think about how many times in the gospels, whether, you know, whichever one we want to look at, where Jesus is now confronted by the religious leaders. They come and they come to look to trick him, don't they? But what happens is Jesus is already a step ahead of them. He knows what they're going to do and he responds to their answers by actually exposing them for who they really are and confronting them with their distortion of the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. And then they look to kill him. They pay to have him arrested and manipulate his guilty verdict and eventual crucifixion. So Peter is warning them, he's pleading with them to see the crookedness of their generation and to embrace the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And friends, with with this kind of language coming from the lips of Peter and subsequently from Christ, it's clear that there is no place for what is called universalism. And I hear this a lot, and I even hear it from people who are functioning under the umbrella of Christianity. And universalism basically says, it's a theological belief that, that says everyone will be saved in the end. It is the cultural, popular way to remain religious, 
but to embrace everything. Oh, we're spiritual. It doesn't really matter, Presbyterian, Catholic, Mormon, Islam. We're all going to get there eventually. All right, we're, we're all going to fly into the airport of heaven, so to speak. You're going to find that there's no concourse for you. You've arrived at the wrong airport. Your airport is in a warmer territory. This universalism, friends, though, is rampant. And we need to see because it, it creeps in to things that we're doing in the church. And it creeps into our thinking. It says, come one and all. Jesus accepts you as you are. We're all children of God and he is waiting to bring you home. And of course, it's laced with some truths. But it denies the need for an incarnation. It denies the need for crucifixion. It denies the need for a resurrection or for Christ's exaltation. If there's universalism, we don't need any of that. Jesus then is reduced to being a good example of someone you should follow. Well, certainly the gospel says that everyone can come, but in order to be saved or converted, you must Turn to Christ in faith and repentance. You must confess that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And we see this even with different religions that, that, that want to be accepted, that want to be embraced under this gospel umbrella. Mormonism doesn't believe in the Christ of the Bible, but they still want to be considered Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. Catholicism has eclipsed Jesus with Mary and the saints and the burden of works gospel. So friends, we don't believe in the same God. We don't believe in the same Messiah, Jesus Christ. We don't believe in the same gospel of these religions. We, we open the Bibles and we see what it says, what Peter is saying here. So don't be fooled. We're still living in a crooked generation. And we need the salvation that only Christ offers. Fourth, a gospel conversion. What we have here is a summary statement, but it reveals the fruit of or the impact of Peter's sermon, the impact that it had on the crowd that was listening. It says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So first of all, those who received his word. In other words, they accepted Christ's message. This is another way of describing repentance or calling upon the name of the Lord. Each of those expressions points to a different dimension of the embrace of the gospel that saves. Yet this is an expression Luke does like to use. He uses it in Acts 8.14 where we read now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Again, there was an embrace, there was a reception, there was a conversion going on there. The same in Acts 11.1, the same in Acts 17.11. And so it's, it's right to use this expression, I have, I have received his word. This is a true statement about true believers who've repented before the Lord. Those who received his word were baptized. Now, it would have been quite the sight. Just think about this. Devout Jews gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, having now repented of their sins, gathering at pools all over Jerusalem to be baptized by one of the apostles, publicly abandoning the corrupt generation of religious Jews and demonstrating their allegiance to the truth that the scriptures pointed to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. That's just, just a shocking image. This is radical. This is impactful. This is obedience. And it is commanded and expected as the natural response to true conversion. Hear this. Biblical Christianity knows nothing of true conversion without a public baptism. If you have repented of your sins and your rejection of Christ and are now forgiven with the Holy Spirit living inside you and you have not been baptized, you're a biblical anomaly. And unfortunately, 
This is very much a Bay Area phenomenon. I came to the Bay Area and I was just struck. The two things that hit me was like, uh, we don't care about church membership. Secondly, it's like, eh, baptism. I don't have to be baptized. I, just, there's a mentality here, even among Christians, that you would repent and you would choose not to get baptized. It goes contrary to Scripture. It is the very first expectation of all who repent before the Lord. And if you don't go through the waters of baptism, you're walking in disobedience. And I just want to encourage you, if that is you, talk to me. We want to restore that. We want to help you through that. And there may be other issues that, that are at work there that, that result in that. So we have here then those who received the word, those who were baptized, and then also those who were added. 3,000 souls were added to the 120 that day. I don't know if you caught the word soul in some of the songs that we were singing today. You see, biblically speaking, your body is made up of two parts. There's the physical, it's your body, and then there's your soul, it's the immaterial part. There are other words that Scripture uses to describe that immaterial part, the heart, the mind, the spirit, the inner man, but there's two parts. And here, what's important is not so much the body, but your soul. When you die and you're put in the ground, it's your soul who enters into eternity. This is what is important. Your body lays in the grave, but your soul is what really matters. Now, friends, just what an incredible sermon. What an incredible response. What an incredible Savior. Now, I want to reflect together with you over what we've just looked at and this is going to be a little bit more corporate in thinking, but although there'll be some personal application, but we need to think through some things together. I just have three things I want us to, to process through that flow out of this text. First of all, conviction. We cannot manipulate it. We cannot manipulate people's conviction. There's a, an old revivalist pastor by the name of Charles Finney. And quite frankly, his methodology has set the course of much of Western Christianity. And I think that much of Western Christianity has, has lost its way when it comes to this issue of conviction. You see, what Finney did is he created these new methods. This is back in the 1800s. These new methods believing that if they were used, they would produce the right results. And so he introduced what we now know as the invitation or the altar call. It was not in existence before Finney came on the scene. And he developed it basically because he believed that through the altar call that people could be, in a sense, coerced, manipulated. He wouldn't use those words but they would be affected to make a decision for Christ. Now, apart from the fact that Finney was a heretic in his theology, he was. He denied uh, the original sin, substitutionary atonement, justification by faith alone. But the most important thing is that he established this thing called the altar call as a mechanism, as a tool to how somehow control the crowds and get this kind of result that he wanted to see. So what are some ways that we can be guilty of manipulating people toward conviction? Well, I wrote down a number of them. Four, I think I have here. The first one is creating ambiance. This is probably the biggest issue I have experienced as a pastor, interacting with other pastors or even on a pastoral staff. It is, con it is convinced, or people are convinced, that we must set the mood so that people can contemplate and commune with God. And so to do that, we do things like dimming the lights, putting candles around so that they're flickering, playing soft music, including compelling graphics, utilizing sensory tools and objects, structures, things like that. All these things to kind of create an environment, thinking that if there's the right environment, then, then conviction will come more readily. 
This was especially true when I came out to California in the early, early 2000, 2004, where this, what was called the emergent movement, was, was all the rage. And if you, if you have no idea what that is, oh, thank the Lord. But if you don't, it was basically a, a, a revival of medieval thinking that was very, very mystical. And everything became, we've got to do all these different things, and people have to experience all this different stuff. And if you don't do that, then people aren't going to be convicted. Now, there's an element of truth, friends. There's an element of truth to say we want to have a, a, a right environment where we can read our Bibles and think, right? I mean, there's, there's an element of truth there. But even if you did all of these things, they don't produce conviction. Secondly, and you've probably experienced this, guilt-ridden invitations. Like many of you, in my younger years, I sat through many invitations pastors gave after their sermons. It was as if the effectiveness of the sermon was directly um, evaluated by how many people came forward in a service to the altar. Boy, pastor was really good today. Why? Well, look, at the altar was full, right? And so the, the goal now became how can I get people to come forward, right? I remember being at camp one time, serving as a counselor, and these were, these were junior kids, so they're, they're young. They're, they're like, you know, sixth grade. And the pastor preached. He preached for about 45 minutes. And I'm not joking. His invitation was longer than his sermon. And I'm looking around. These kids were responding because they just wanted to be done with the evening, I'm serious, but there's this manipulative tool. There's this feeling that I have to see these results. You have to do something. You have to come forward. That's the element of truth. The element of truth is that, is that in our preaching, in our, in our, in our, even our Bible studies, there, there needs to be kind of a call to say we need to respond. But this mechanism of, of this invitation is one that became a manipulative tool. And, and people are, are, ended up being, I would say, uh, mastered by it. So we don't practice an altar call here, and that doesn't mean we're less spiritual. Because you are responding to what God is saying here today. You are. And you are responsible for how you respond. Third, perceived signs and wonders. Having personally grown up in the charismatic context, where the offering of signs and wonders, perceived signs and wonders, was the main attraction many times. That was the show. That was the focus. That was the mechanism. If you saw this, boy, that should drive you to repentance. No, we're not chasing after signs and wonders somehow to bring about conviction. And then there's this last one, and I think I've, I've sat under this before, and I'm calling it the bully pulpit. And this is where the pastor starts to get louder and louder and louder because, by golly, he's going to make sure that you respond. You're going to respond? You better. Get louder. And the louder you get, the more, oh, I better do something now. So the pastor can, can beat on his flock to produce an effect and to get results. But friends, true gospel conviction can only come about through the preaching of the word of God in prayer. The word of God in prayer. Now just think about this. What was it, you recall, that Jesus was doing with the apostles before he left? He's walking them through the word of God. Showing himself to them. Showing how it all connected and pointed to him being the Messiah. And what do we find then the apostles doing as they were waiting for the gift or the promise of the Father, they're gathered in the upper room, devoted to prayer. If you want to manipulate conviction, get on your knees and assist to make sure that the word of God is proclaimed, whether it be in the context of church, the context of a home group, the context of a small group. Those are the two essentials. It is the Holy Spirit who brings about conviction of sin, and he brings it by virtue of the word of God. 
So we need to de-emphasize the tools of manipulation and keep our focus on the power of prayer and the ministry of the word of God. I know my wife, who's playing the piano today, is probably wondering, am I supposed to go up there when you pray and start playing the piano because I don't want to manipulate conviction? No, I think there's a place to say, let's create something that just causes us to think. But don't think that a piano is going to bring conviction. It's the word of God that does that. All right? Secondly, conversion. We cannot replicate it. We're not called to replicate the glorious results that bore fruit on the day of Pentecost. Now, I remember in a previous church having conversations with people who were upset that the church was not growing numerically. Actually, it was shrinking. And they would turn to Acts 2 and say, Look, this is what the church should look like. This should be, there should be conversions. This should be souls being saved. The church should be growing as a result of our ministry. And they would say, see, that is what happened in the early church, and that is what should be happening in our church. And friends, that's a lot of pressure for any pastor. And that's a lot of burden for any church that embraces that as a reality. Why is it we're not growing? Why is it in, in one day, 3,000 people were saved? We have to get a new auditorium. But see, if you look at Acts 2 as the standard, as the model, then you're going to come up with these ideas. But Acts 2 was never supposed to be a, a method manual to produce results. This is where we confuse description with prescription. Certainly there's things here that we're going to learn about, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But we want to be careful that we don't just see, oh, they had 3,000 people. Man, we've got, to, we've got to have some exponential growth going on here, or, or, or we're not being successful. Now, friends, as I was going through seminary and coming out early in ministry, it was an era when churches were popping up, mega churches, because of the seeker movement. And the secret movement basically diminished the gospel and adjusted the church to be more like the world so that people would be comfortable coming in. They would literally go around in community and say, if we start a church, um, what would you like it to be like so that you would come? Oh, okay. So don't, don't preach at me. Okay, we won't preach at you. Oh, that would be great. It was good music and stuff like that. So all this kind of nonsense. You have these churches that were growing big, but they were light on gospel. And it was during that time that a couple by the name of Kent and Barbara Hughes went to plant a church in California down in L.A. And it just, it, it, it wasn't growing. <laughs> and these, I mean, Kent Hughes was like the, you know, a prime graduate of a seminary. His wife was a wonderful lady, practiced hospitality. They had all the gifts and the talents you would want in a church planner. And it just didn't take off. And they got discouraged. And even depression was present. And so they together said, what's going on here? And they took time then to study God's word. And what they determined was that the measure of success is not in the results, but in your own faithfulness to Christ. See, we're in an American mindset where where success is always measured by how many. And what they determined that success, biblical success, is measured by faithfulness. So one of the things that's often asked, you know, you might say, well, you meet someone, oh, so where do you go to church? Well, I go to my church, you know, okay, that's good. And they ask you, well, where do you go to church? Well, I go to Gateway Bible Church. And they say, okay, well, how many people do you have there? Well, we have about one of them. And what's interesting is I go to Bolivia, and I say, we have about 100, 120 people in our church. And they're like, man, that's a big church. You see, we're, we're, we're all on the wrong level if we're talking about success and vibrancy of a church is measured by how many. But sadly, that's how many Christians view things. It's not how God views it. He measures success by faithfulness, not necessarily fruitfulness. We leave the fruit, up to him. But we want to maintain a faithfulness to carry out what he's called us to. That's really important, friends. So this is true for the church, but this is also true for life. I mean, just think about parenting in in this light. 
How many people have heard, well, if you just train up a child in the way he shall go, when he is old, he'll not depart from it. So as parents, you're doing all you can to do the right things and, and invest in them. And when they grow up, they will just go on and serve the Lord, flapping their wings for the glory of God, right? And the problem is they start flapping all of a sudden, boom. And they start wandering away from the Lord. And you're like, what did I do wrong? Now, you probably did a lot of things wrong if you're like any other parent. But the weather vane of your parenting was glorifying God and raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Your faithfulness doesn't guarantee the fruit. Just remember that. And may that be a comfort to you. It doesn't mean, okay, well, I don't have to care about it. No, it means do all you can. Be faithful to the Lord. But you know what? That person has to repent. They have to hear the gospel. They have to embrace the gospel. And they are the ones that have to stand before the Lord. You've done all you can. Friends, we need to remind that, remind ourselves of this. This is also true as it just, as it comes to life. There's only one way to the Father, and that is through Christ. Not religion, not Catholicism, not ritualism, not trying to work to somehow impress God, not riding the coattails of a family member. No, the only way to the Father is through Christ. And that's what Jesus says, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So conviction, we cannot manipulate it. Conversion, we cannot replicate it. Finally, calling, we must welcome it. And by that, I want us to see that, that God's call to us is for us to be saved. That involves conviction, that involves repentance, that involves uh, forgiveness. But we're also called to this thing called sanctification. He doesn't just call us into the family and say, okay, now I'm just abandoning you. Or you don't have any responsibilities. He's calling you into what's called progressive sanctification. You're called now as a child of God to live your life in such a way that you're growing to be more and more like Christ. It's a life grounded in our salvation and God's forgiveness, but it's a life where we're called to continue to listen to the word of God, to continue to be obedient to what the word of God says, to continue to be submissive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit who is speaking to us through the scriptures. In other words, God has called us to live our lives for his glory, guided by the Holy Spirit through his breathed out word. And that means that there will be an ongoing conviction of sin, repentance, obedience, and a desire to follow the Lord's will. So by means of clarification, our Christian life began with repentance that brought about our conversion. But now that we're saved, we are called to a repentance that is in a sense, restoring us to this this picture of Christ. He wants us to be conformed to Christ. Our sins have been paid for, but this is now a relational thing. This is a maturity thing. This is a growing thing. So as God reveals your sinfulness to you through the, the mirror of God's word, you repent of your sin. You see, this is what God is saying. This is me. This is wrong. This, this is an offense to God. And so I repent of it, and I'm restored in my relationship in that particular area. God reveals our sinful habits and our behaviors as we place ourselves under the word of God. That's what we're doing each week, friends. We're seeking to understand that and to grow to become more and more like Jesus. So this is what it means to walk in the Spirit. When we are confronted, challenged, or guided by God's truth, we are being led by the Spirit. And when we apply God's word to our lives, we are producing the fruit of the Spirit. This pursuit of ongoing sanctification is what God is calling us to now. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is the church. So an answer now back to the beginning question. What shall we do? Well, if you're someone who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are convicted, you're cut to the heart and turn to Christ in repentance and be forgiven. Receive salvation through faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross. I want to plead with you. This is an urgent plea, friends. You could be sitting in the context of this church. You could be watching online 
over and over and over again, and yet you have not responded to the gospel call and been converted. And God wants us to say, and he wants you to hear, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what you need. Repent and be baptized and receive that forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you're already a follower of Christ, the answer to the question, what shall we do, is to keep welcoming the Holy Spirit to lovingly confront and conform you to being more and more like Christ. When you open up the Bible for your own personal devotions, and I'm, I'm assuming, I'm hoping you're doing that, you're not just going to find information. You're going there because you want the Holy Spirit to expose your heart, to show your sinfulness, so that he can help you with what you're going through, and, and you can be restored and forgiven, and you can grow. So we ought to want the Holy Spirit to do that thing. I want in sports, it's no good if you have a coach who doesn't tell you what's wrong with your swing or with your shot or whatever it might be. You want to know what the flaws are. And it's a kindness for them to show you what it is so that you can be more mature and you can be more skillful and you can, in this case, honor God with your life. So friends, I plead with you. Repent. Be baptized. Receive the gift of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Call upon the name of the Lord. That is the message and the emotion is conviction that leads to all those things. May this be something that we are now welcoming and encouraging to take place in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible First public Christian sermon, Lord, packed, packed with gospel truth. And Lord, today, as we've looked at the response of these Jews, Lord, may we, may we reflect on how we have or have not responded to the gospel in our lives. Lord, if we don't know you, if, we, if we've heard about you, if we've even just been around the church for so long that we're caught up with the culture of the church, but we haven't embraced you, Lord, I ask that you would affect our hearts to such a degree that we would repent and we would, Lord, find a wonderful place seated at your table as part of your family. And Lord, maybe there's someone here this morning who's, who's a believer who follows you, Lord, but is struggling with a sin. They're ashamed of it. Lord, they're overwhelmed by it. Maybe it's overwhelming them at this point, but Lord, help them not to fear you. Yes, to be ashamed. But Lord, to come to you knowing that you are a God who loves them, that you died for them, and that you, you want to welcome them back. You want to restore them. And so Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning. Have your way with us, we ask in your precious name. Amen.